It's Friday, October 27th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Horrible murders in Maine, 18 dead, two locations. The shooter, as of my speaking into this microphone, still not captured. Now, I don't always talk about every mass murder in America because they are so common, and because if I can't bring a new perspective, I tend to leave the coverage to others. The how did he get the gun, did the authorities miss anything, the necessary work of hearing the victims' stories, all important, all credibly brought to you by other outlets. Also, I try to say something new, and I always try to say something true. And the true thing is very much not the new thing with these stories. I mean, in general, and in this case too, these are the choices we've made. These are the inevitable, and I would say horribly logical consequences of policies that we as citizens either endorse or just don't have the political will to undo. But Actually, if you look at Maine, the state of Maine, things are a little different there. Maine is the safest state in America in terms of violent crime. Issues of guns and homicide play a little bit differently there than they do almost everywhere else. The state of Maine has 20-something murders in most years. Before the pandemic, it experienced 19 homicides in 2017, 19 homicides in 2016. That will be the same number if one of the victims currently in the hospital from this assailant passes away. Every year, the Maine State Police put together a list of every homicide in their state. It doesn't take much scrolling to get through. Interpersonal violence is the most frequent way people are killed in America by guns. In Maine, that's not true. Maine does have gun deaths, suicides, many suicides, over 100 in most years. But suicides are almost never done with long guns, the type that were used in this slaughter and many of the worst slaughters we've seen in America. Of Maine's 19 to 29 homicides, typically more will be beatings or stabbings or this is sad. Almost every year, babies killed at the hands of adults. But Maine actually could have plausibly told itself that it doesn't have a gun problem. It has a gun suicide problem, but it doesn't have a gun murder problem. If you look at gun murders, it has Canada numbers. But Maine isn't Canada. It's in the United States. And Lewiston now joins a morbid list of communities where the plague of mass shootings has descended. It is a very American, even quintessentially American list. On the show today, I am sad to say that this will be not a day of good news where we pivot to the fun. If you want fun, we are doing a Just Trivia contest among Pesca Plus subscribers on Monday. Subscribe.pescaplus.com is the URL to find out more information than that. But today we will be dedicating a full show after you heard that horrible entry into more horrors of the world. We turn to an interview with an Israeli academic and a veteran of dealing with the question of Gaza. 
So I ask you to listen to my talk over two segments with Kobe Michael. And don't think of his word as the last word or the only perspective or authoritative writ large. But his point of view echoes and shapes much of the Israeli public. And it is an informed point of view. You should know where he's coming from. He's a senior researcher at the Institute of National Security Studies in Israel. From 2009 to 2013, he served as Deputy Director General of Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Affairs, where he also ran the Palestinian desk, and he joins me now, Kobe Michael. Let's turn to Israel, and among the major questions is this one, hanging over Israeli society especially. Why hasn't the ground war begun in earnest? We have heard many explanations. Logistics take time. Uh, There has been advice coming from the U.S. that tunnel fighting is especially hard. The New York Times quoting American generals telling the Israelis that they lack achievable military objectives. There's a notion that waiting hurts Hamas more. They are hunkered underground with limited resources. There is the question of shoring up a possible war with Hezbollah and how long that will take. There's the notion that more time might bring back more hostages. There's also the very real idea that Israeli leadership has been since 1973 somewhat gun-shy, especially with ground invasions. And I'll give you another quote. The Wall Street Journal says that Israel has agreed to delay its ground invasion until the Pentagon can get air defense in place to protect U.S. troops. Joining me now is a senior researcher at the Tel Aviv-based Institute for National Security Studies, Kobe Michaels, an academic focused on Palestinian issues for almost three decades. He has massive amounts of experience in government as well. He knows this subject and he knows Hamas inside and out. Welcome to The Gist. Hello, my pleasure. So I laid out a lot of possibilities. I'm sure more than one is true. What's your analysis to answer the question of why we are three weeks on and still no ground invasion in earnest? I think that uh, you have already provided uh, all the possible explanations, but uh, I would say that um, um, the the most uh, crucial barrier uh, in my understanding is uh, the hostages and the American pressure in this regard. Um, In addition, of course, to the other explanations that were provided by you. Uh, and I find the issue of the hostages as a very, uh, a very complex issue, and uh, in a sense, uh, a very problematic uh, from the moral point of view and from the strategic point of view. I think that the principle of uh, distinction, separation, selection between uh, Israeli citizens who own a foreigner citizenship and Israeli citizens who do not is something that cannot be tolerated morally. It's an immoral principle. I mean, it takes us uh, immediately to the horrors of the Holocaust and uh, Entebbe 1976. And uh, the idea that um, the the strategic uh, objective of this war that was uh, announced by the government of Israel, the destruction of uh, um, the military and governmental capacities of Hamas was approved and supported by the American administration as well. So how it comes that in the very same time, we are negotiating with Hamas and we are enabling them 
to leverage the hostages in a in the most cynical, brutal, barbarian manner in order to um, in order to, uh, to 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 have some uh, further concessions from the Israeli side and from the international community. And the third point in this regard is Qatar, something that I really cannot understand. Okay, mm-hmm. Qatar is is our enemy. Qatar is the enemy of Israel. Qatar is the enemy of the United States, and Qatar is the enemy of the free world. Qatar is the biggest provider and supporter of Hamas, and um, Qatar hosts on its soil the, the the heads of the snake. Okay, Ismail Aniyeh, who is the leader of Hamas, and Khaled Mashal, who is a very senior, is the previous leader of Hamas, and he is a very senior figure. Currently, of Hamas, they live. They live in Qatar. They enjoy the security of the state. They have very nice lives there. They, yes, they live in Qatar in a very nice life in a very fancy villas, which are sponsored by the Qatarians. And from the Qatarian soil, they are calling these days. They are calling to the Arabs and to the Muslims in the entire world to go out to the streets and to slaughter Jews. And uh, in addition to that. Uh, we have Al Jazeera, okay, which is the most radical, inciting, dangerous media platform in the world. So I think that, uh, and, and taking into consideration that Qatar is such a funny country of less than 400,000 citizens and 1.5 modern slaves, okay, which is totally dependent on the United States of America with regard to its, to its defense. So uh, the Americans should have put on the table three weeks ago an ultimatum to Qatar, telling Qatar, you have 24 hours to throw out from the Qatarian soil all Hamas terrorists to stop immediately any kind of support in Hamas and to shut down Al Jazeera. And if you are not going to do that, you are going to remain alone. And I can assure you that they wouldn't have survived two hours. Two hours they wouldn't have survived. So instead of bringing the Qatarians and Hamas on their knees, letting them uh, letting them understand that the, the hostage holding the hostages is not a strategic asset but a strategic liable, we are negotiating with, uh, with them. We are providing Qatar the position of the princess of diplomacy in the region. We are enabling them to uh, to to introduce themselves uh, 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 with a human image in front of the world. I mean, I, I, yeah. cannot, I cannot understand it. And I think that it is very problematic. So there's a lot there. I just want to make a couple of points. One is, point of clarification, by talking about privileging certain hostages with U.S. citizenship, that is what you were talking about, the uh, just morally unconscionable yes, to, tr- course, to privilege course. them b- other than just Israelis. Yes, okay, that's one. Secondly, Qatar is at best an amoral state, and maybe in a situation like this, amoral is the best you can hope for. Um, it, to be an intermediary in a sort of conflict like this, you can't have someone who's totally on your side. They, the other side wouldn't view them as a proper intermediary. So why shouldn't we look at it as don't let the uh, perfect be the enemy of the marginally acceptable? I will explain you. Because uh, we can uh, have even better results from Qatar and Hamas if they will feel pressured and under a threat. Okay, now we are providing them with privileges. And instead of providing them with privileges, and uh, and honor, okay, and uh, prestige, we have to 
pressure them. We have to bring them down on their knees. They must feel threatened and they must feel fear. Okay, and then they will provide because if they feel that the sword is on their neck, then they will provide. And I will tell you something else. I think that people must understand that the war in Gaza is not the war of Israel against Hamas. It is much wider and broader than that. Hamas is a component. Unfortunately, we found that it's a very, um, very significant component of a much broader camp or axis, which is the resistance axis led by Iran and supported by whom? By the Russians and by the Chinese. Okay, so here we are in a in in a in a in a in a sort of a world war between the the brutal barbarian darkness and humanity. We have two camps here: the the free world and and, and the other camp. And this is the time for a moral clarity. Okay, and the moral clarity says that you have only one option: with us or against us. This is not the time to sit on the fence, a fit here and a fit there, okay? With us or against us. Mm-hmm. Can Hamas be defeated? Were the Israelis to decide tomorrow, okay, we're going in and we're going to talk about that. Tell me if a defeat of Hamas's military and governing capabilities can be achieved and what that would look like. Definitely. Look, uh, I think that people do not understand, at least uh, till the end, what is the meaning of defeating ha- defeating Hamas uh, from the military point of view, okay? what Or what is the meaning of denying their military cap- capacities and governmental capacities? Talking about military capacities and defeating Hamas militarily, it doesn't mean that we have to reach to the last terrorist or to the last RPG or to the last rocket or the last Klachnikov, okay? Mm-hmm. We have to deal with their centers of gravity. We have to paralyze them. We have to prevent them from becoming once again a military threat against Israel. And uh, and this is something that can be done. I mean, uh, it will take time and uh, it will be costly and uh, it will be complex, but it can be done. And we are able we are able to do that now. We are now concentrating on the northern parts of the Gaza Strip. Why? Because once we will collapse their centers of gravity in the north, they will lose their abilities of command and control. And uh, I would say most of their weapons, most of their military capacities are concentrated there in the northern parts of Gaza, uh, of the Strip. And this is the reason that we are concentrating there and we are urging the population to evacuate the area. And unfortunately, uh, Hamas, which uh, uses its uh, population as human shields, prevent uh, civilians from going to the south of the Gaza Strip, okay? Uh, Because they want to have the images of casualties. They want to to have the the images of, uh, of, of dead citizens, because this is the way, their cynical and brutal way, uh, to play with the international media and with the international tribunals to delegitimize the state of Israel and to show the entire world, look what big are the war crimes that Israel is exercising, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, eventually, uh, I think that we will be able to evacuate uh, most of the region. By the way, it's almost totally evacuated from citizens. And um, I think that uh, we are now uh, gathering uh, and uh, analyzing the information, the intelligence with regard to the traps that Hamas uh, has prepared in advance. 
okay, uh, in order to bypass them. And we are preparing them some huge surprises that I think that they haven't thought about even uh, in order to reach to these centers of gravity and to collapse and to destroy them. Israel, it's been reported that Israel estimates that Hamas has 30,000 fighters. Is that an accurate figure? And understanding that you don't have to get every last one, how many of them, what percentage would have to be eradicated to declare victory? First of all, you have to eradicate uh, all the... um all the all the command all the commanding level okay all the the political leadership level in order to 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 let them uh, remain confused and uncontrolled and unable uh, to 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 operate in a very coordinated manner secondly we have to deal with their um, most crucial weapon storages okay uh, because uh, if they they will be uh, without this uh, this weapon then they, they will be paralyzed and uh, then we have to kill many terrorists, okay? And uh, I think that uh, the preferable thing is to kill them inside the tunnels. Um, I don't know to say uh, what exactly should be the figures, but I, I'm talking about thousands of them, okay? Uh, and at the end of the day, I believe thousands. that many thousands, yes, the, the, the other many thousands will surround them. Will surrender. Yes, if they will choose to, to continue fighting till the end, so they continue fight, They will continue fighting till the end, and uh, there will be more thousands of them that will be killed. Right. So right now, Israeli leadership no doubt has figures of what they can expect in terms of casualties of IDF forces, in terms of deaths. Do you have any ideas what the range of those numbers that Benjamin Netanyahu and others are considering? No, and I think that even if they know, they uh, wouldn't have published it, okay? Uh, But uh, everybody is uh, pretty sober to understand that we are going to have casualties. I mean, war is a very ugly, brutal, violent, aggressive uh, phenomenon, okay? I mean, there are no free meals in this regard. I know, but would you say thousands? No, from the, of the IDF? Yes. No, not at all. No, not at all. Hundreds. No, but uh, look, we recruited 360,000 reservists in addition to the regular army that we have, okay? Yes. Now, they are uh, deployed in, in, in different fronts, not all of them in the Gaza Strip, but we have a lot of them in the Gaza Strip, okay? So we are talking about a, a land incursion, a land invasion uh, of uh, something which is much more than a brigade or a division, okay? They will not be able to stop it. So they will be able maybe, you know, uh, to, to hit a, a tank here, a tank there, and a, a vehicle here, a vehicle there, but we are talking about a very huge uh, mess of troops and, and the armored vehicles and tanks and artillery and engineering forces and, and air force, I mean, they will not be capable to, to, to tackle it at all. But in the very same time, we know that uh, we are talking about an urban warfare and we are talking about traps that were prepared in advance and we are talking about a very determined um, terrorist, okay? And uh, it's not going to be a piece of cake. It's not going to be the six-day war, okay? Do you think that Hamas's strategy depends on a second front from Hezbollah or maybe Iran? Of course. Look, I think I, I, 
was very troubled since um, Saturday, October 7, with regard to the strategic prospect or the strategic objective of, uh, of Hamas, uh, Hamas operation or Hamas attack. From day one, I didn't accept the, the explanation uh, with regard to their purposes behind this attack uh, as if it is for uh, releasing the prisoners or bringing the Gaza Strip issue to the attention of the international community or something like that. Such an attack, such an operation, which is planned for a very long period of time and prepared for a very long period of time, was exercised or, re or realized by their elite commando unit, the Nukba, okay? They have only 3,000 of them. 2,000 of them yeah. participated in this attack, and they, and they, and they knew that uh, most of them will not come back, and they knew that the price tag of such an attack will be so high that it doesn't make sense that everything was done just in order to release the prisoners that they have in the Israeli prisons, okay? So uh, the question is, what actually was the purpose? And I will tell you what is my theory, and I think that after three weeks we have more and more evidence that this theory is well-grounded, okay? Um, we have to understand that at least since nine, uh, two, um, 2018, Hamas developed a strategy uh, which is very similar to the strategy of Iran. It is based on the organizing rationale of multi-front warfare against Israel, okay? When Iran actually uh, developed this strategy for more than a decade, and uh, the, the, the engineer of this strategy was Qasem Soleimani, uh, they actually prepared four fronts against Israel, uh, Lebanon, Syria, West Iraq, and Yemen. And in their eyes, the Palestinian arena is the fifth, uh, the fifth front, which is a very important and crucial one. And the idea of the Iranian was to keep the state of Israel in a continuing attrition war in order to exhaust the IDF, in order to exhaust the Israeli economy, the Israeli society, in order to, um, in order to increase the mistrust between the Israeli society and its government, and uh, to prepare themselves to the D-Day when they reach, will reach to the conclusion that this is the right moment in order to attack Israel simultaneously from all the fronts together, okay? This is the, the, the Iranian strategy. And it is a, a very crucial component in their deterrence equation against Israel. What is the Hamas strategy? Hamas strategy is based on the same rationale, and the idea is to prepare in advance five fronts against Israel. The most crucial center of gravity, the Gaza Strip, and then East Jerusalem, the West Bank, the domestic arena of Israel, which means the Arab citizens of Israel, and South Lebanon, full coordinated with Hezbollah, okay? And we saw it already in May 21, okay? In the events of May 21, when all of these fronts were activated simultaneously. It began from Jerusalem, and then the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the domestic arena in Israel, the Arab citizens of Israel, and South Lebanon. It worked on May 21. So I just want to make clear, Hamas explicitly coordinates with Hezbollah. Hezbollah knew about this, uh, the October 7th incursion, for instance, and they know what their marching orders are? With, with the Iranians. And, yes. I'm and I'm telling you that the expectation of Hamas was that um, this attack will create um, um, such a shock, okay, 
for the Israelis, and it will be interpreted immediately by all the Palestinians in all the other fronts as a divine sign, okay, as a sign from God that this is the moment to collapse the state of Israel, and then all of them from all the fronts together that Hamas prepared in advance will attack Israel, and this will be the sign for Iran to activate all the external fronts and then all the 10 fronts together on Israel in order to collapse them. And they didn't succeed. And we will be back in one minute to continue our conversation with Kobe Michael. We'll talk about what is Hezbollah's strategy in all of this. And we're back with Kobe Michael. Take me inside the Hezbollah thinking, acknowledging that they are a proxy of Iran, perhaps Iran there, here is the puppet master. Hezbollah still has choices to make. Even if they had uh, pre-warning of this, even if there was coordination with Iran at this point, they have choices to make. So what will influence them to join the fight in earnest and what will influence them to save their powder and munitions for another day? I don't think that Hezbollah is independent in this regard. Hezbollah is a, is a proxy of Iran, and I do not believe that Iran uh, has an interest to uh, to um, to bring Hezbollah to um, a full-scale war with Israel because uh, the price that uh, Israel will pay will be a very high price because Hezbollah is much more serious organization, much more dangerous in comparison to Hamas. And the price tag will be very high for Israel, but in the very same time, Hezbollah will not remain there. Iran will will lose forever their capacities in uh, in Lebanon, and Lebanon as a state will not exist anymore. It will be totally, completely destroyed. Look, there is something which is very important that I would like to emphasize with your permission. You must understand the Israeli psyche. In the Israeli psyche, now, after October 7, we are in chapter B of our war of independence. Not less than that. This is an existential war. And in existential war, you have only two options, to be or not to be. And due to the fact that the second option of not to be is not an option for us, we are remaining with that one option only, which is to be. With all the importance of the international community, with all the importance of uh, the uh, very unique, important, crucial strategic relations that we have with the United States of America that we really, really, really appreciate, when it comes to the existential matter, Israel and the Israeli leaders will do what they have to do in order to assure that the people of Israel and the state of Israel will remain on this piece of land, secured and safe. How much will world opinion affect Israel's actions? Um, it affects, but uh, under the current circumstances, uh, much less than previously. And uh, this is because of uh, two major reasons. First of all, Israel adheres the international law of war, and I'm not sure that uh, there is any other um, 
country in the entire world that adheres the international law of law of a war like uh, like Israel. Um, and secondly, uh, we understand that uh, in a sense, um, the war in the international media is almost lost. If the Secretary General of the UN could uh, say in, uh, in the Security Council what he said about uh, the atrocities of Hamas, that we must understand that they were not done in a vacuum, okay? Right. Uh, as if, uh, actually it's not as if, he justified the atrocities. And we see what is going there uh, with uh, uh, the intellectual elites and what is going there in the American universities, Ivy League universities, when a professor from Cornell University who participates in a, in a demonstration, uh, a pro-Palestinian demonstration, and says a day after the atrocities that he, he feels so excited and happy about that. So yes. actually, it's a lost war, okay? So To be fair, he apologized, though some uh, of the other protesters. Okay, but well, he apologized, so what? I mean, but this is the general atmosphere, okay? You know, the, the, the progressive elites of, uh, of the West, um, they, they went so far with all the things which are related to political correctness, and they are so biased towards Israel, and they are so addicted to the language of colonialism and so on and so forth. So uh, it's almost a lost war. And due to the fact that this is not another operation that we have in the Gaza Strip, like the operations that we used to know from 2008 till today, this is an existential war. So we don't care so much about the, the things that are said by the, by the international community or by the international media. We have to fight our war. We have to fight for our life and for our existence. I will take your point that it's existential for Israel. I won't rebut you on that. But for the United States, no matter how staunch an ally the Biden administration in the United States is, it is not existential for the United States. It would be, to many in the United States, a horrible thing were Israel to cease to exist and Iran to gain their victory. But they have different strategic considerations. And if the United States is to look at this picture and not totally buy in that now we are at war with Russia and we are at war with China and we are at war with every one of Israel's enemies, as you laid out, the United States backing could lessen. And that would, would it not, in many ways, impinge upon Israel's ability to carry out its strategy? Yes, yes, it will be a huge liability. It will be a very, um, I would say, a, a very complex strategic problem for Israel. And uh, we have to listen carefully uh, to what the United States of America says, and we have to consider its uh, uh, strategic interests as well. We cannot ignore it. And this is the reason that we are trying to do things uh, with, uh, with the maximum full possible cooperation with the United States of America. But at the end of the day, let me tell you something. And this is, these are not my words, and you have to internalize it very carefully. Because, you know, you were uh, so indifferent. You, I mean, uh, generally speaking, the, the American public was so indifferent to the, to the uh, radical Islam, okay? Uh, and the, most of the Americans thought that this is something that we have no connection to. And, and, and eventually we, we met uh, September 11, okay? Um, we have to listen carefully to the things that are said and have been said, not by Professor Kobe Michael, 
but by Hamas leaders themselves, okay? And they say in their words, and listen carefully, Israel is only the first phase. After destroying the state of Israel, we intend to reach Paris, Rome, Berlin, and New York. We are going to reestablish the Islamic Caliphate, and the entire globe is going to be Islamic Caliphate. And all the infidels, the Jews and the Christians, will have one option and one only, to convert to Islam or to be slaughtered. These are not my words. These are their words. And I warmly recommend everybody to take them seriously. I respect the Palestinians and I respect the Iranians and therefore I believe to the things that are said by their leaders. I don't have the privilege to patronize them and to tell everybody, no, they don't really mean that. There is from one hand on the other hand, we don't have to take it too seriously. We are, they are under occupation, okay? They have to, to gain some legitimization and so on and so forth. No, I take them seriously. If they say that they intend to slaughter me, I have to be prepared to meet them in their way to do that and to stop them. Kobe Michael is a senior researcher at the Tel Aviv-based Institute for National Security Studies and an academic who's been studying Palestine, Gaza, and all these issues and living them for many years. Professor Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>